Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of a long time, <laughs> and I'm a former competitive <laughs> bodybuilder. Uh, this is Phil Stevens. I'm strength coach at Strength Guild, uh, and I compete in powerlifting, Highland Games, and whatever else they throw my way. Also for a long time. <laughs> uh, for a long time, yes. <laughs> uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I've been in college for a long time in the past. <laughs> <laughs> Staying with that theme, uh, owner of Extreme Human Performance, a faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and creator of the Flex Diet Certification, which goes live again this coming Monday. Sweet. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Mike, if you ever want to, we could put a little audio clip in the like mid-show when that's live and hot and happening or whatever, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah, I can get one done for you. That'd be awesome. I'd appreciate that. Uh, okay. Everyone, we are going to have an episode with just us today, but then behind the scenes, you guys won't see it this week, but we're going to reconnect with Dr. Ruscio about gut health and some things people can do. Um, lifters can do specifically, you know, action item type things. Um, we just confirmed, Phil and I did, with uh, Captain Kirk, him and Marty Gallagher are going to be on, so that'll be a fun one. So some guests coming up, but... Today, we are just going to discuss direct arm work. Now, I know we've discussed uh, making stubborn arms grow just uh, maybe two months ago, but this is a little bit different. I just want to talk about why would different strength athletes, and since Phil does all of the above, um, why would they do direct arm work? You know, um, I've actually heard some people say that they don't even do direct arm work. I think it might have been Chad uh, Waterbury years ago making a comment that I think he, at the time, he wasn't even doing direct arm work. And I'm like, oh, like maybe that's the bodybuilder part of my mentality, but I can't imagine not doing some direct work at some point uh, in a workout at least once a week. But then that's me. So we will discuss that after the break. Uh, news. Strength and muscle sport news. My, this first bit of news, Mike, I think you beat me to the punch on this one. You had mentioned about uh, cortisol and hormonal timing and how it can affect fat gain. Um, yeah. So I got my usual update from Nature, and I, a lot of our listeners realize these are the big leagues, right? Nature is like the, the Earth's premier science journal, arguably. Um, and this is from their physiology subsection, brand new. I mean, this is literally... At least I got the update just uh, within a week. Uh, it says, why fat piles on when the body's daily cycles are in disarray? Turning off, um, I'm sorry, timing of hormone fluctuations influences fat cell development. So it says, changes in the patterns of hormone production might cause weight gain when circadian rhythms are disrupted. And again, Mike already touched on this. It's just, uh, there might be a few more details here. Uh, hormones called glucocorticoids, right? A lot of athletes fear cortisol because of its muscle degrading potential, but um, they also stimulate the production of mature fat cells. 
uh, probably differentiation from like pre-adipocytes for you bio, biology people. In humans, glucocorticoid levels naturally rise in the morning and fall in the evening, but stress can also elevate them. And if you're unfamiliar, for about the first three hours that you're awake, your cortisol levels are really quite high. That's natural, you know, up and down sort of rhythm that you probably actually want. Uh, let's see. To study how glucocorticoid levels relate to weight gain, Mary Teruel, T-E-R-U-E-L, at Stanford and her colleagues injected mice with glucocorticoids at various times during the day, but fed them the same amount of food. Um, long story short, mice given the hormone late in their wakeful phase gained weight. Uh, mice injected just after they woke up uh, when their glucocorticoids naturally were already high, did not uh, gain weight and, you know, the sort of deleterious effects on their fat cells. The results suggest that high glucocorticoid levels at unusual times of the day could contribute to weight gain. This could help express, express why stress and disruptive sleep cycles are linked to rising body weight. So it's, um, and then the sub-reference is cell metabolism 2018. Um this is further evidence to me that that whole chronobiology trend, you know, about it's not just how much you eat or what you eat, but when uh, could matter. And then this is sort of supportive of that on the hormonal mechanism side. There's a very cool picture I actually saved for the classroom. It shows little precursor fat cells, little uh, baby pre-adipocytes that don't really store fats and oils like, you know, full-blown mature fat cells. And it shows them lying amongst these um, fully grown fat cells, and you can l literally see the little oil droplets in them. It's a really cool sort of, uh, you know, histology pick here. But um, I don't know. It just, to me, that it, it emphasizes that it's too simple to say a calorie is a calorie because they fed these animals the same amount of food, the same amount of energy, the same amount of everything. And the ones who had the stress hormone late in the day got fatter. You know, mm. so a lot of this has to do, I think, with uh, like partitioning effects, right? I mean, what are we trying to do in our sport so often is partition nutrients toward muscle tissue, not toward fat uh, and hormones. You know, I always tell like the, the, the doc students, hormones control the show, right? So you're doing differential diagnosis. You're like, I'm stuck. What is going on? Always at least think about what's going on with their hormones, you know, because it, it can have a, a lot of effect on those sorts of things. But like I said, credit to Mike on that one, though. I just that's a follow up. I just saw some of the names of the researchers and whatnot. So I don't know how we would turn that into something practical. We would have to really guess, right, sort of extrapolate those findings, but try not to get stressed out emotionally at night. You know, that kind of thing. You might want to back off on the stimulants late in your wake cycle because those can not just cause adrenaline production, right, epinephrine, but also probably stimulate your adrenals to make, you know, um, cortisol and things like that. Uh, I don't know, Mike. Yeah, one thing I've done with clients, too, is it's anecdotal at this point, but <clears throat> even moving a few more of their carbohydrates to the evening, if they get kind of more stressed around that point, because they tend to make not the greatest food choices then, tends to be more a social situation. And then I've often wondered, with, especially on this study, too, that insulin's kind of the opposite of cortisol, if that may help blood maybe some of that cortisol response a little bit too yeah it's sort of a catch-22 i've wrestled with that myself because if 
Carbohydrates, yeah. right? Like if you look at them during stressful exercise, they reduce cortisol levels, right? So like right. the sport drink benefit. And yet at the same time, if your cortisol levels are very high, uh, you might be somewhat carbohydrate resistant. So you're almost like trying to treat treat the emotional side of it, you know, or like you said, blunt blunt some of those counter-regulatory hormones with the insulin. Uh, but it's at a time when you're not supremely carbohydrate sensitive. I guess in our population, though, we're always at least reasonably carb tolerant, you know, compared to the yeah. average Joe. Yeah. So. yeah. A lot of those studies, you know, were done on people who are not exercising also. Right. So yeah. 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 Um, next, I just I actually just got this this morning um, from Kelly. Uh, energy drink consumption linked to anxiety, depression, and stress in young adults. So it's sort of related topic mm. here. This is from Michelle Simmons. Now, the write-up is just from a lay pub, uh, naturalnews.com. But mm. they're talking about an Australian study. So here we go. The study was carried out by a team of researchers from the University of Western Australia who looked at longitudinal links. And, you know, that's interesting to me, right? Instead of just doing the snapshot cross-sectional thing, they, they tracked them across time. Um, longitudinal links between energy drink consumption and the symptoms of anxiety, depression, and stress in young adults. And then it just goes on to say, of course, energy drinks have a combination of possible ingredients, caffeine, which is sort of central, um, sugar, taurine, ginseng, guarana, which again, stimulant in nature, the guarana, B vitamins, and herbal extracts. And again, stimulant in nature, usually those herbal extracts. Uh, according to the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health uh, at the NIH, energy drinks are the second most popular dietary supplement consumed by young adults in America, uh, multivitamins being the first. Moreover, males aged 18 to 34 drink the most energy drinks. I, I don't find that that surprising. Um, this study involved 1,000 participants. They completed some self-report questionnaires. Uh, it looks like they tracked them over two years. The way this is written is a little bit hard to uh, understand, but it says the research team then used linear regression analysis to see whether the energy drinks were related to depression. Um, let's see, on the Depression Anxiety Stress Scale 21, the DASS 21. So it looks like they're using a replicable, validated instrument for this. Um, and the idea with linear aggression for people who aren't familiar, what they're trying to do is see what factors load very heavily, in this case, on their dependent variable, right, which is like depression and anxiety, because there's going to be other things that can cause depression or anxiety, and then you could kind of correct for them. So they try to correct for their social, like socioeconomic demographics, their lifestyle factors, their physical activity levels, their drug and alcohol use. Uh, their diet, their body mass index, right? Their weight for height. Um, so after they adjusted for some of these potential confounders, the results showed that switching from a non-energy drink uh, to an energy drink across a two-year follow-up period was linked to an increase in DAS, depression, anxiety, and stress scores in men. On the other hand, there were no significant links found in women. So again, I, I found that interesting that women seem to be less negatively impacted when it comes to depression, anxiety uh, from the energy drinks. And yet it's the guys who are hit harder by it as far as side effects that are the, that are seeking it. So um, not, you know, very good news, I suppose, when it comes to 
some of these energy drinks. I would, again, I, I'm extrapolating to pre-workout powders and, and pills and whatnot, but I got to think there's a lot of those same ingredients are in pre-workout kind of supplements. So I guess that would be the, the downside. I, I don't know why it's really surprising to think the anxiety part, right? If you jack your fight or flight hormones sky high, um, if you don't go to the gym and kind of burn it off in some level, you know, you're going to end up with some anxiety, you know, problems with sleep or whatever, and that could lead to depression and, and whatnot. But anyway, it looked like a new, uh, a new study on this from Australia. Yeah, and I think I was able to track that one down. It looks like it's a 2017 study because the link in that article sends you to another link, which you then have to look for the actual yeah, <laughs> study I did not. where it was published. Right, this time. Uh, yeah, and so for people listening, they can look for the new uh, JISSN uh, updated position stand on caffeine that will probably have some stuff on energy drinks in it. Also, they'll be out hopefully later this year since I was one of the people helping work on that. So <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to look at that, obvious, my obvious interest in coffee. Yeah. I've moved away from energy drinks. When I was in Minnesota, right, I was looking at Redline and some of those really strong energy drinks. And since I moved toward coffee, I know it sounds hippy-dippy, but there seems to be a lot of healthy stuff in coffee, you know, that could counteract some of the usual problems with large amounts of stimulants like from energy drinks you know again it's, I, I say hippy dippy but i'm trying not to use the word natural because that gets abused so badly um you know as far as coffee being a better choice but phil you still go for the occasional energy drink don't you yeah yeah i, I have one usually on usually just saturdays so other than that it's coffee but even i've, I've curbed down my coffee a lot i'm only having caffeine maybe a couple days a week so wow yeah, me and Mike were talking about this. My wife like went off of it because she was having some uh, heart palpitation issues, and now ever since we've since found out it wasn't that, but now we're pretty used to not being caffeinated. So right, <laughs> so we're drinking a lot of decaf, and it's like, well, why go back if I'm doing okay? Then I can just use it on training days and when I need it. I think so, that's the key. Yeah, selective yeah. use. Yeah, yeah. This so, past week, I did the same thing. I was drinking decaf. Uh, I just I stumbled across some local really good stuff and it's decaf mm -hmm. but it's good stuff and i thought yep. i'm gonna drink that throughout the morning because yeah. usually i find when i'm in front of a classroom I mean, if you're in front of between 15 and 50 people you kind of have to be on your game anyway mm -hmm. so i found like what am i doing reaching for the caffeine and mike it might have been you i think a year or two ago we were talking about how uh, when under like emotional stress or social stress men go for the caffeine and the coffee Whereas women don't yep. as much. And that, that seems ironic that we would do that, right? When we're under this sort of situation, we reach for, I'm thinking it's probably the dopaminergic effects of the coffee. You know, it's somehow soothing yeah. and stimulating. But honestly, yeah, if you're already in that anxiety-inducing scenario, what are you doing reaching for more caffeinated coffee? You know, so anyway yeah i always track my amount of caffeine just an approximate um in my training journal i've probably done that for like five years now and i'll see it kind of cycle up and usually like sleep you know is going down and things like that and then i'll try to plot out okay i've got you know two more days of this project that's due and then try to do the inverse you know try to go very very low on caffeine for the next couple days and i usually try to take yeah, like one to two weeks a year where I don't have any caffeine at all. 
Um, and every time I do that, it's crazy how much more I sleep. And I think I don't yeah. realize, even though I'm a fast metabolizer of caffeine, mm -hmm. if you have some even at, say, 3 in the afternoon, that's still going to be floating around in your bloodstream. The half-life is you're going to still have some there. And it doesn't seem to be enough that you feel. But I noticed I sleep a lot longer once I cycle off of caffeine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, have you noticed, I know you track HRV. Do your HRV yeah. values drop when you're drinking lots of caffeine? They do. And it's interesting that initially they don't. But if it continues, then they do. Which is always hard to sort out because maybe it's the, the sleep loss or maybe it's the change in perception that I feel like I've had good sleep, but maybe I haven't. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, my sleep number usually goes down. And then, yeah. So the other part I find that's it's interesting is that HRV usually correlates more to sleep debt than acute sleep loss. But I think it's looking more at those kind of build up of stressors. Because yeah, if you chronic. get one night with not too much sleep and you're not in the sleep debt, you can be okay. It's not the greatest thing in the world, but you can be okay. But if you're in a sleep debt and then you keep doing that and then you start adding stimulants and stuff on top of it, then, yeah, I definitely see a, a big drop at that point. I'm curious because uh, I've got two sort of superstar students wrapping up some pilot work on that. If you remember, we were looking yeah. at, um, yep. you know, steps per day and HRV and just a whole host of things and just trying to look at their diet logs and seeing what kind of correlations we can find. And they are wrapping up, you know, the data entry, like literally as we speak. So I'm hoping by May I'm, I'll be able to tell listeners sort of what we're seeing in the lab in that way. Um I know for a fact that stimulants will drive down your your heart rate variability, of course, because you know there are things like Adderall that you can notice, oh. like will just crush, you know, it crushes it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, we um, I, and I actually saw that once. I'm like, wow, like coffee is nothing compared to something like that. I mean, that's you know, it's amphetamine for God's sake. Of course, it's going to put you on sympathetic overdrive, but. Yeah. yeah, I've seen that in four people now over the past six years, and I didn't catch it at first. We went through the whole list, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? You know, pretty active person, healthy lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. And I asked him for like the third time, I said, are you, you sure you're not on any other medication? You've got any weird genetic history? And they're like, well, I take Adderall. I'm like, oh. Yeah. And I mean, their HRV was probably, I would say, 20 to 30 points lower than yep. most other people in a similar situation. That's what we saw as well. And I think it's a lot like birth control. It's so common, people don't even think yeah. about it's oh, one yeah. of their meds, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's exactly what I saw. Because, you know, as we're doing a little bit of pilot work, one of the, one of the uh, potential subjects actually said, oh, yeah, well, there is, there is the Adderall I'm on for, you know, ADHD. Yeah. And I'm like... Whoa. Well, that explains it because either that or our equipment is busted <laughs> because yeah, your numbers yeah. are in the toilet, you know. So I guess practical tip, right, for listeners, if you are on um, an ADHD med um, like Adderall, you've got to really make some proactive m movements in your life to try to recover because you are going to be at a at a deficit when it comes to that. You're just on, you know, fight or flight overdrive like all the time. That's how they work. You know, so. Yeah, and I found that, you know, obviously working with their physician, it's very hard to get people off of it. And it's also, I think, because of the 
neurologic association that, you know, some people I think may have a very good reason they're on it. I think it's probably abused by a lot of other people. Um, but it does work to have you focus because of what it does. But then I think people get in the habit of that's the only time that they can focus by using it. <clears throat> so they kind of build up that sort of skill set of using it to focus. And that, you know, takes a while to kind of unwire some of that stuff. Right. Yep. Okay, I have one last bit. This is a mail from Matt. Um, he says, I'm an avid listener who's sadly running out of episodes to listen to. I believe a couple times you've mentioned wishing you could open your lectures up to the general public. Have you thought about Coursera or some of these other online offerings? Um, I've taken courses on these sorts of websites to close some of my knowledge gaps. Uh, when I shifted gears from my BS in biology to my master's in engineering. Well, he's your kind of guy, Mike. Um, yeah. So, so he got some really good info doing some of these things. Um, now, let me just offer this. Last year, I mentioned that I teach a completely online summer class. It's a, it's a basic, straight-up sports nutrition class. It talks about some of the cell machinery and how nutrients interact. It's the kind of thing where... I mentioned it online because so often people say, what's a good book that I should start with, you know, when it comes to nutrition or training or whatever. And my usual response is very curmudgeonly, which is, you know, listen, son, you, you need to get yourself, <laughs> get yourself a good basic, like learn the basics. Because when I talk to people in the field, and I bet you guys could echo this, they're really well read on certain things and they can have a very advanced conversation but if you carry on the, the conversation for any length of time, they'll say something that makes you wince a little. Like, ooh, yeah, that's not how that works. You're really on the ball with this. But this over here, the, you know, a you, 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 little bit of confusion there maybe. So that's what a course like this does or like a, a kind of a, a nutrition 101 textbook. I'm always pushing the Mill Williams, you know, um, sports nutrition textbook because it's basic enough to lay down the, you know, some structure for you, some foundation, but then every chapter ramps up into a very recent literature review. Like if you wanna know what's happening with creatine or energy drinks or whatever, it's just a really uh, good book. Um, anyway, I'm teaching that online summer class again, uh, but there's been some frustration. Last year, five people asked, and I, I checked at the registrar and they're like, no, no, you have to actually go through the full admissions process at the university to take this one course. And I said, even if it's for personal enrichment, like these guys can't, they're not going to go dig up their ACT scores from 20 years ago, you know, or write you an essay or, you know, the usual college admission thing, the things that are worthwhile if you're going to stay at a university for four or five years, but probably not so worthwhile if you want to take a summer class for four or five weeks. So... Uh, that looks like it's actually changed this year. I've been talking to some people in admissions and the registrar. If you're interested, send me an email, lawnman7 at hotmail.com. Uh, and then along with Matt, maybe we can get you in um, the summer course. Here's the important thing. This is college credit at a private school. So it's not going to be cheap. We're not talking about like $200 for a weekend cert. You know, this is a, this is a six-week university course for actual college credit. But if you're interested, I think I've actually made some progress in reducing the barriers, you know. So if you want to spend the money and get college credit, you could do it as a non-degree-seeking student, and they're not going to make you do something like, you know, go retake the ACT or write an essay or pull up your transcripts from God knows where, right? Um, 
if you're a, a student somewhere else, it's actually quite easy. You could take it as a transient student, like, you know, just kind of uh, enrolled in one place and taking it somewhere else. That part's easy. But if you're not enrolled anywhere right now, you're not a student, but you want to lay down some basics, I'm going to toss that out and just see, like I said, I had to essentially turn away five people last year because I wasn't going to expect them to go through this, you know, full admissions process to take a summer class. So hopefully we've made some progress. And if you're interested, let me know. Uh, and it's totally online. It's asynchronous. You do it on your own time and all that kind of stuff. But it's more that, like I said, it's uh, lay down the basics. We literally march through the different nutrients, right? So, you know, carbs, fats, proteins, vitamins, minerals, water, and then some special topics like supplements, fat loss, and muscle gain, that kind of stuff. If you're interested, let me know with an email, lonman7 at hotmail.com, and we'll see what we can do. Like I said, this would be for the people who are financially stable and they want a, a credit for an actual university course. So it's not quite the same as a, as a certification, but um, I, I do want to try to open this up and reduce barriers to the average person because, like I said, in the fitness field, how many really bad certs are offered by just these you know, brainless oh. gurus uh, making up their own systems and their own rules. And it's, it's, it's not how it's, you know, that's not how it works. Um, anyway, I thought I would toss that out. Yeah, I just have two shameless plugs on that, but I do teach for Rocky Mountain University. So they do have a really good program that's online for health promotion and in the fitness field. Mm -hmm. um, that's very related to strength and conditioning. Again, I teach for them. I don't make any money if you sign up there or not. But I think their enrollment closes at the end of this month. So if people are interested in that, they can just look at it online. And then I do teach a one-year-long course with the Kerrig Institute that's four modules. And it's basically a 300 graduate-level credit uh, course through them, all on exercise physiology, how to use everything from uh, muscle to cardiac to strength to neurology to nutrition. So it's myself and then uh, Dr. Kenneth J and Dr. Freddy's Garcia and a few other people from there uh, that are teaching it. And that uh, first course, I think, starts this summer. But I think you may have to be enrolled before that. And last thing on that is that most of that is online. It's a flip classroom, so you can do all of it online. Yeah. And then we've got uh, three uh, days over the four times over the year where you come in and do all the lab stuff in three days. Wow, a year long, you said. Yeah, it's a year-long program, but they can take just one module if they want. But the whole course is over the course of a year. So you'll do all the stuff on, say, um, muscle skeletal. That'll be all online. And then there'll be a three-day at the end of that one. We'll walk you through a lot of the assessments and the testing and everything like that. Hmm. Um, so, it's yeah, it works out really good because when Kenneth and I were primarily putting the course together, we wanted something that... If we had to go back and redo, you know, everything for exercise fizz, but make it practical for a lot of people that, you know, work as coaches and trainers and maybe DCs and PTs, you know, what would we include? Right. And we've got, you know, all the original reference material. We've got the Catch McArdle book. And so it's a legitimate, like, graduate level course. Right. Yeah. Obviously, my stuff is going to be very nutrition specific. Right. So. Yeah. But yeah. And yeah. you know what? These are these are online offerings. It makes me think about what Phil has long said, which is, and Iron Radio does it. I mean, we're partly guilty that we give information for free 
and the average person mm. expects fitness and nutrition information in in our field for free. Mm. You know, yeah. oh hey, can you help me gain <laughs> weight? And like you would never go to physical therapist; they'd look at you like they wouldn't even, you know, um, justify the comment with a response. They'd be like, well you're not in my care you're not being treated by me no i'm not going to help you rehab for free yeah. <laughs> you know or a lawyer or pick a professional but mm -hmm. in our field people want it for free man and and yeah. we're talking about university credit for this stuff so yes it's not completely free and it's not just a weekend you know so for those of you who want it you know there are some options i guess how about that all right uh that's all i've got uh any Anything happen in the industry for you guys? Um, J JP squatted a thousand eight yesterday. I think. Nice. Getting ready for the current U.S. Open, so he's a month out. Oh, um, God! You mean it, was that in yeah. your gym or out out your direction? No, or? it was down in Kansas City, so okay, about an Kansas hour away from me. And then uh, uh, we got like seventeen lifters coming to a meet in two weeks, and Big Brian squatted eight thirty five for. What he squat? Eight thirty-five for a double. No wraps. No belt. No nothing. Oh my god! Oh, um, <laughs> so yeah, he's looking to put up big weights. He pulled pulled nine hundred with straps. So now we got to do it without it. straps and no belt. Nine hundred wow. deadlift. <laughs> um, and what five thirty-five for a double on bench? So Jeez. he's having a good meet. Big so, numbers. Yeah, there's some stuff coming up. But no, that's cool. Times. That that double that reminds me. I saw the video that you posted of uh, of Kirk. Yeah, you know, yeah. Oh, at the end, he, he, he doubles. What was it? A thousand yeah. plus, right? I, yeah. Yep. And then, and then the the handler, the, like the people, go to get the bar, and he goes, "Leave it! I want to, I want to hold it! I want to stand with it!" And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> intense." Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, okay, uh, let's go to break. Then when we'll come back. We're going to discuss direct arm work uh, across different strength sports, uh, and maybe you can glean something from that. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry and what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. 
Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. Uh, It's Phil and Mike and Lonnie, and we are going to discuss direct arm work. It's the kind of thing that over the years I've heard some people sort of not be that excited about it. You know, it's like, why are you spending lots of time curling in the squat rack, bro? You know, stuff like that. And and the kind of usual almost insults that get thrown around about direct arm work. But uh, obviously there's a place for it. I would argue that most lifters do some direct arm work. Uh, We touched on some of the basic arm anatomy a couple of months ago when we talked about making stubborn arms grow. But I do think it's important to understand that not just like general stuff like forearm flexors and extensors or the idea that you've got uh, a a brachialis lying under your biceps or a brachioradialis that sort of in in a way connects your humerus to your forearm bones there. And again, I'm not going to go into a gory you know, discussion, radius and ola and this and that. But there are some big players here like the biceps, the triceps, the brachialis, brachioradialis, and different movements address them, you know, and that sort of thing. So I have some questions uh, for you guys. Let's start with Phil. Um, Why would a power lifter or someone in strongman, highland games, whatever it might be, why might they do direct arm work? Oh, numerous reasons. Um, we do a lot of it at the end of our workouts, and a lot of it's just like hypertrophy based. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it might be I'll just be like, okay, hundred curls with a barbell. Um, for powerlifting, uh, bicep work helps bracing on the bench press a lot. Um, there's no arguing that. I mean, if you can control the descent a little better, uh, and we do so much tricep work. Um, we've talked about it before. You can only if an opposing muscle group is lacking that other muscle group will just stop getting stronger <laughs> at, at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be a little balanced, things like that. Strongman, um, I think you're seeing it more and more people are doing it because uh, to help aid against the uh, bicep tears, the tendon yeah. tears. Yeah. So strengthening strengthening the bicep tendons and things like that. There were a lot of people just not doing it at all and lots of bicep tears happening. So it's definitely not a as much of a vanity exercise as it is a performance exercise but uh and it's kind of an afterthought one too right so it's just oh well i need to get some in so i'm gonna pick up this barbell and just curl it a hundred times and i stole that from uh derek poundstone was doing that he'd just end his workouts with a hundred hundred curls with a barbell just an empty bar 45 pounds so but i mean it's work you get in so um yeah usually for health reasons i guess so we don't blow something or mm-hmm. for performance reasons so we can kind of stay balanced out uh you know 
have a better eccentric on the bench press and better stabilizing. I mean, if you got really weak biceps and you're you're trying to bench 400, 500 pounds, it's probably going to be all over the place. You need to be able to stabilize that load uh, with your upper arm. So, and the right. bicep is a player in stabilizing the upper arm. Yeah. So, to me, I would think. I mean, that's the that's the connector between your big you know, core, like torso muscle groups. And yeah. like, if you're going to hold a caber or a barbell, or yeah. I mean, you transfer the energy through those muscles and you can't have mm-hmm. bean pole arms and expect yeah. to cash in fully on those big pecs and lats and traps. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I've never seen somebody bench 600 pounds that had small arms that had small biceps. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, a lot of the work we get in, you know, now undoubtedly we do tons of rowing. So we get a lot of bicep work in there. Um, tons of bent over rows and ring rows and chin-ups and things like that and and i mean while it's not direct bicep work the arm is bending under load so the biceps are working so um you know we get a lot more that way too so i'm I'm supposed we do a lot more than we we lead on but uh we do do some direct arm work and some of course direct tricep work so right yeah we'll get to exercise choices in just a bit uh, Mike, what about your thoughts as far as you know usefulness of direct arm work and your clients or yourself? Yeah, I think it's useful. I mean, very much for the same reasons Phil stated. Um, I know I'm incredibly guilty of not doing much direct arm work off and on, and for quite a while I didn't uh, probably do much of any direct arm work. I mean, I did chin-ups and rows and that kind of stuff, but and I did some grip stuff, but I wouldn't do anything bicep-y related. And then when I was doing more strongman stuff, especially stones and tires, I'm like similar to Phil, and I know Phil's had some bicep issues in the past, could speak more directly to this. I look and I'm like, wow, my tendon insert of my bicep is sore. Oh. Yeah, not good. <laughs> like not, I didn't yeah. rip anything. I didn't do anything bad to it. But you get that deep soreness, you know, kind of right at the end of the muscle belly. And I'm looking at what I'm doing on, you know, stones and everything else. And I'm like, oh, so maybe throwing in some direct bicep work is probably a good idea, you know, because it's that, especially if something happens where you slip on a stone and you're trying to still grab it on its way down, that super heavy eccentric, or people miss on a tire and they've got their hands on the inside. Um, tires are the worst because the load's just so massive in that kind of weak position. But I'm like, yeah, I should probably do a little bit more work there. And then it also helped. Uh, I had a little bit of tendinosis in the back of my tricep insertion. Um, so once I started doing just lighter uh, direct arm work, then that all went away. Maybe it's a blood flow. Maybe it's just a more of a work issue. Um, so I think for stuff like that, it's definitely helpful. For clients I have, it just depends on what their goals are. You know, if they've never done any of it, we'll probably, you know, toss them in. If their overall body composition, yeah, I just kind of add it into what they feel like they want. Um, obviously, if they're doing physique or something like that, it's going to be a little bit different. Right on. No, I hear what you're saying. No. I mean, I, I actually knew a guy, Jim, uh, up in Minnesota there at uh, the, uh, the boardwalk where I would train. Yeah. Um, and he said he actually uh, blew a biceps doing heavy preacher curls. You know, and so often you hear in my experience, it's more like Phil's what happened to Phil, which is a big pull, you know, a big deadlift. And and you you blow it like that, because, I mean, as far as mass goes, your biceps and triceps just no, no wonder you would just want some hypertrophy work, like Phil said, because your lats, your traps are such huge muscles. And Mm -hmm. if you're going to do a deadlift, it's such a compound, your glutes and quads. I mean, 
they are some little guys in a lineup of giant meaty, you know, slabs of of, of muscle. Uh, so you would think that just the general hypertrophy, you know, would be good. But, uh, yeah, what you're talking about, like the insertion, biceps insertion, that like that aponeurosis, you know, that, that sheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you like to think that that's, oh, well, that's going to make that whole thing stronger and better. It's like a whole sheet there at the insertion of the biceps. But, yeah, that starts to get really tender. That would make me nervous, too, you know. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think where people – don't understand like bicep tears are usually in the 99 percent of the time it's not from from like trying to curl a heavy load mm-hmm. it's when your arm gets straightened on yep. the load yeah so yep. and that's like a, the two ones i've done were atlas stone and a tire um the atlas stone you just can't pick them up without a bent arm um so they're just inherently dangerous but uh the tire i just messed up and i was being sloppy and i picked it up on a bent arm and uh the 500 pound tire was stronger than I can curl, apparently. So. Well, right, yeah. Go figure. <laughs> On a whim, yeah, for sure. So. Uh, okay, a couple other things. How about if you can offer Phil a good arm, uh, like a favorite arm exercise, and then something that's bad? Like for example, I like standing barbell curls, you know, like or, or dumbbell curls because I can supinate. Um, a lot of times, though, people will they'll make fun of triceps movement like a kickback right and and so i i can me address some of that like what makes one good why in your opinion do people think kickbacks are bad anything like that honestly the most we use is a barbell curl just Uh a standing barbell curl Mm -hmm. and we use that the most i think where people mess that exercise up is they they start heaving it around and treating it like it's a (laughs) freaking a massive uh like a primary movement and I'm going to yeah. make this get this load any way I can. And I'd, I'd rather see somebody just do it nice and controlled. And, uh, you know, literally, we're not trying we're not going for PRs here We're we're going for building some tissue and some tendon strength. Yeah. And if you're just heaving it around like crazy, you're probably doing the opposite. Missing the point. to your tendons. Yeah. Yeah. You're missing the point. Um, God, a bad. A bad bicep exercise um, or triceps either way. Yeah. Yeah. Try, I mean, uh, a tricep kickback, I think, is the one that comes to mind. I mean, it's just inherently kind of ineffective. But uh, why do you think that is? Is it just because well, you can't use any load? Most of the through most of the movement, you're not doing much. Mm-hmm. You know, from the bottom end, at least halfway up, you're hardly doing anything just because of the, the the angle of the lift. So it's that top end from about halfway up to lockout. Lockout's where you're going to get the biggest lever arm. You know, but uh, it's just it just demands. Not much load, and I just don't think it's very effective. Whereas I can get a cable or something like that, and I'm loaded through the whole movement. Yeah, tension so, through the yeah. yeah, you have yeah. tension through the whole movement. Whereas, uh, and usually we're going to be the weakest. You're going to be the strongest naturally at near lockout, anyways. So you're not attacking that weak area of the move hardly at all. Where when, when my arm is in complete flexion, is where I need to get stronger generally in my triceps. Yep. And yep. we're ignoring that with a tricep kickback. Whereas if I use a cable, I can load it up right from the start, and I'm I'm hitting that weak area just like on any lift. I mean, the bottom of the squat is generally where people are going to suck. So we you know we can stroke their ego by uh, I don't know using really heavy band tension or something like that to where it's super light in the bottom and then really heavy at the top. Well, of course they're going to move a lot of weight. You know they're 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 not attacking that weak area at all. So yeah, I'd probably go towards that one. I mean. 
So yeah, I agree very much with the like the whole idea. The reason I like lying skull crushers, you know, or lying triceps extensions, mm -hmm. is your arms are in that more like flexed forward position. Yes. You can feel that stretch, and yeah, and when you do a kickback, your arm, your upper arm, your humerus is in like an extended position. Yes. Yeah, half the movement's gone. Yes. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Kind of, uh, Mike, what about you? Um, good and bad um, recommendations? Yeah, I think for tricep stuff, I think the kickback is, I would say, almost pretty worthless unless you're extremely hypervigilant about technique. And even that, I think you're probably better off just doing something else. Because if you watch almost anyone do it in the gym, the, the angle of the humerus basically drops down further and further. So when you hit that full extension, you're you're not all the way even up at the top. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? you basically just you made the exercise quote unquote easier by relieving the the main muscle of some of the work. Mm -hmm. So, and even that, if you're doing it right, you know loads are going to be pretty light. Just as Phil was saying, because of the the way the exercise is designed. Mm -hmm. um, I like cables a lot better for that because you can get more constant tension throughout. Um, skull crushers, I, I I always find they bug my elbows. They but are if hard I go on your elbows. A, a yeah. decline. And I can keep the humerus basically straight up. That that seems to relieve a lot of elbow issues for most people. So that may be an option they can play around with. Mm -hmm. um, I do really like the the standing bicep curl with just a bar. I think that's a very underrated exercise if you're super strict about how you do it. Mm -hmm. So I'll even have people posterior pelvic tilt because I want their low back to be a little bit more neutral. I'm trying to get them out of that, you know, extension position and them leaning back so much. Or you can get even weirder and just put them up against a rack or against the wall so mm -hmm. that they can't move their upper body back. And it's crazy how much of a difference that'll make for people just in terms of weight. Um, and another version of that, once they get good at that, is you can do what's called, uh, I think Vince Deronda had this called the drag curl. You're basically bringing your humerus, your upper arm back so that the bar... Is touching your torso all the way yeah. up. So you're taking that long head of the bicep and you're stretching that all the way across the shoulder, and then you're having it work from the bottom position. You know, I yeah. have actually found that drag curls, sometimes if my elbows are acting up in any way, I can still do some drag curls in, yep. without further irritating everything, you know. So. Yeah, I found that too. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think the biggest mistake with all this direct arm work stuff is people letting their, they let their ego get a hold of them. And they're wanting to move weight instead of, it's really not about that. It's not a performance. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's not, not a performance move. Yeah. So, yeah. Agreed. Uh, and that can be hard for a performance athlete to do. Right. So. Yep. Um, order in the workout, I guess that goes without saying, but this is generally stuff you're going to do at the end. I can't imagine why you would do arm work before you did performance lifts, <laughs> right? Yeah, the only time I'd do it is a little bit. Maybe we do with like a light band or something. In a general warm up, warm up, just yeah. to get things warmed up. Yeah, you know, but it's yeah. not going to be hard. You know, it's going to be throwing a bunch of reps in just to get things warmed up. So, yeah, makes sense. Um, my last one. Let's start with Phil. Um, what have you done this week? Like, let's just look at look into your playbook a little bit. Have you done any direct arm this week? And what was it? <laughs> the eating. Lots no, but I'm two weeks out from a meet, so literally all I'm doing is like uh, I pulled some deadlifts up to 650 for a double, and then I'm going to go squat 650 today and bench, okay. and that's it. That's all I will do. Yeah, so I'm like doing no assistance work. So right on. Okay, uh, Mike, have you done anything <laughs> direct arm work? 
Uh, not actually this week. Um, so I'm down in South Padre, Texas. So I've been kiteboarding the past couple of days. And then previous to that, I was with uh, Adam Glass in uh, Dallas. So we went to the gym with him one day. And we actually did some super old school uh, Pete Sisko, John Little uh, static contraction training, um, which is very heavy, kind of partial end range of motion type stuff. We did do a little bit of bicep work at the very uh, end of that, which we've never done that. It's it's an interesting experience to to do that. Um, I'm still on the fence if it transfers a lot to powerlifting because that's more of a full range of motion. But again, it all depends on what your goals are and what you're trying to do. Uh, so Adam does a lot of grip stuff and does a lot of crazy stuff like you know bending like thick wrenches and stuff like that where it is very much an end range of motion where you have to be ungodly strong there too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, previous to that, the week before I just did some, some plate curls, did some V bar work. And I guess I'd say more kind of oddball kind of grip based stuff. Right on. Yeah. I did some, actually I broke a rule a little bit and I did a little bit heavier, just Scott curls, you know, sometimes I just wanted to feel the tension. Ah. I just felt like I wanted to get a little sore and that sort of thing. You know what though? We're being remiss about any kind of grip stuff. When we talk about direct arm work, we focus a lot Mm -hmm. on upper arm, of course, um, just maybe a quick recommendation from each of you about, you know, what what might you suggest for improving grip, something forearm related or? Depends on what you're trying to do. Um, like I can tell you just from experience that, that crushing grip is a lot different than locking grip. Like I don't have that oh, yeah. great of crushing grip, but I can hang on. I've picked up 900 pounds on a bar. Um, mm-hmm. and But I have guys that can't pick up near that but they can crush like they can close grippers and things like that so it depends on what you're looking to do with my athletes most of the time it's not crushing grip so we'll do a lot of farmers and things like that so they just need to hold on to things yeah that's a favorite for me too i like farmer stuff i never had much of a grip really even when i used to do like uh low rack pulls like i could do up to about 405 with a mixed grip i mean i'm sorry that's the best i could do (laughs) and because I didn't want to, you know, if I went heavier than that, I would actually use straps. And I know that's blasphemous for powerlifters, but I wanted to be able to get enough weight on my traps and my back, you know, with some of those low rack pulls. But, um, and then, then that's when I started thinking, maybe I should do some direct forearm work because literally I have a hard time, you know, hoisting up a, a 495 on the bar, like with some kind of pulls. Uh, and I should be able to hold on to that. You would think at least for a couple of reps, but... Anyway, yeah, I'm sure it's an issue for some people. Mike, I know you've even done competitions with this kind of stuff. What would you recommend? Yeah, so usually with most people, the three things I have them look at are, like Phil was saying, some type of hold. And this could be uh, basically just taking their deadlift. The simple one I do is, okay, no straps, chalk, and all your deadlifts now are are both palms down Mm -hmm. only. Uh So, yes, your grip's going to be limited. But if you're pulling, say, 405, and both palms down, you can barely get 245. That's a massive difference mm-hmm. that we need to work on. And most people aren't that bad. But um, so that's probably the biggest one there. Some type of farmers are great. You can get into just isometric holds. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't find that grippers transfer worth a crap for most people because closing a gripper is a very kind of specialized thing and how you set it and everything else. Mm-hmm. I don't find a lot of transfer. I find that's kind of a separate skill. Um, the other one is a pinch grip. So a lot of times the thumb is the weakest part of your other fingers. So just take um, like two 25s or 35s or 45s, put them together, put both hands on it with like a pinch grip, and then just deadlift it. 
You know, if you want to get fancy, take two 25s, try to do that with one hand. There's a whole bunch of different variations, but open palm kind of like pinch mm-hmm. grip to get that thumb to work again. And the last one that very few people do is the kind of the contra spec to the crushing grip is open palm work. And the best one I like for that is a plate curl. So take like a small plate, like flip your hand over like you're going to curl it, set it in your open hand, and then wrap your thumb on top. So at the bottom, your thumb has to hold super hard to hold it, and then you're basically curling it with your hand open and your thumb on top. Mm-hmm. What you find is that you're stressing the open hand and the wrist, and it's pretty rare that even guys who are really strong can walk into a drum and do reps with just a 25. Um, so I found that, that that works pretty well, too, to hit the whole hand and wrist and everything else. It would be interesting to do put some electrodes on your forearm and look at the EMG of individual muscles in these different types of of grip. Yeah, you know, and and what's actually getting activated and how it, how different it is. Like you guys said, they're so specific um, in the kind yeah. of grip. So. Yeah, I think in the grippers, I think what you'll find is those basically the muscles that are really controlling that thumb and stuff are probably more active than what you find in just uh, crushing or supportive grip. Yeah. Supportive grip, a lot of times, it's the thumb being able to lock to the index. And then also, yeah. people forget the pinky. So if you look at the calluses on your hand, that'll give you a pretty good idea of which fingers are weaker. Because the callus is the sheer stress of the bar getting ripped through your hand. And if I look at calluses on people, and like if their ring finger has a massive callus more than the rest of them, now I'm thinking there's there may be something goofy going on with that finger. Yeah, I'm looking at my hands right now. My ring finger and pinky <laughs> have bigger calluses than the other two fingers. Yeah. Yeah, so. and that's pretty normal, but once they start getting super excessive, then I'm thinking, eh, they're, they're getting super weak towards that end. Okay, good stuff. All right, everyone. Well, we're going to cut it there because we have some more recording to do. Um, but some tips, I think, at least as far as direct arm work. It is more controversial than I would have thought You know, earlier in my career. Like I said, some people don't do it much, and and that sort of thing and uh, obviously depends on your goals and the stage of your training i can see why phil's not doing that right now (laughs) (laughs) you know he's not trying to look swole or build mass he's trying to you know be good at his sport so Uh, all right Uh, i guess that'll be it then until next week see you Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, 
things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.